Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and a picnic basket of files on everything from the possibility of sentient AI to new uses for chamber pots. The writer and technologist Kay Alada McDowell has a subtle take on the former in just a minute, and we'll hear how the latter turned up in a Bloomsday sound installation later in the programme. And also this week, we'll join organist Amanda Moll at the console for a test drive. But first, the headlines. Google suspends engineer who claimed AI bot had become sentient was among the weekend's more eye-catching headlines. It introduced a story in which the employee working with an AI had engaged it in conversation, as you do, about the boss and job satisfaction and received answers more suggestive of a co-worker than a tool. He was slapped down by AI researchers inside and outside the company, including one who claimed he was reacting the the way Nipper the dog did to his master's voice coming from a gramophone horn. But that sensation for humans dealing with AIs, that something there might be somebody there, has not gone away. Our guest this time, Kay Alado McDowell, also works on AI and established the Artists and Machine Intelligence program at Google AI. For several years, they've been using AI as a writing partner, most recently for a novella, Amour Cringe, which has been christened deep fake autofiction culture file spoke to kaylado mcdowell about the past present and future of creative collaborations with ai my name is kaylado mcdowell i am a writer and researcher my first book was called pharmaco ai which came out in 2020 and it was a collaboration with the ai language model gpt3 which is a AI-based tool for generating text, and I used it to write that book. And my newest book, which is just out now, is called A More Cringe, and it's with Deluge Books, and it is also uh, written with AI, although it's a very different process. So why did you at first want to work with AI? So I came into AI with a background in software engineering, user experience design, and programming. It was not something I sought out. I happened to be in a group at Google that was building uh, communication interfaces. And my manager said, hey, would you like to go over to this AI group? I'm thinking of bringing the team in to become the in-house design group for an AI research team. And I was like, definitely, definitely want to do that. That sounds super interesting. Uh, So about a year after joining that team, Deep Dream was released. And for those that don't know, Deep Dream is a generative algorithm that produces images uh, from an AI system. And they are very surreal, psychedelic, trippy. Um, The first image that came out of it that actually leaked onto Reddit in the summer of 2015 was called Trippy Squirrel. And it's this squirrel that looks like it's melting and it's got eyeballs coming out of it and it's covered in fractals and it's just very strange looking and it's uh, i've never seen anything like it when Uh, when those uh, sort of images started appearing all over the internet eyes were definitely a big thing one of the things it did was sort of stick eyes all over the place for some reason yeah and you know we could say the reason for that is originally it was a computer vision algorithm that was designed to detect dog breeds so it's optimized to perceive differences between dogs and photographs. 
according to their breed, and so it has a natural propensity for seeing faces. It's trained on top of an, another model called ImageNet that is made to see every, all kinds of different things. Um, so not only do dog faces come out of it, but buildings, cars, people, landscapes, uh, stuff like that. Um, but this hallucinatory property, it's technically called hallucination, that's what they call it, is when you use a perceptual system to generate imagery, just like a hallucination that would happen in a human brain, it tends to include eyeballs, which is actually um, very similar to what happens to organic brains when they hallucinate often. That word hallucinate does turn up in, in, in lots of different spaces in AI because there's there's also this habit of the um, of the AI uh, in tech systems to sort of think that it is a person and it has lived experiences and they call that a hallucination too. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting that my first book, Pharmaco AI, was named after a trilogy of books written by the poet Dale Pendell um, who writes about psychoactive plants and in one of his books, he makes this point that everyday life is actually a kind of hallucination. And this is something that, uh, you know, I think Buddhists would probably agree with and uh, that neuroscience supports the idea that we are hallucinating reality um, and we're generating it internally and responding to that as much as we are to the external stimulus that produces our perceptions. So the idea of hallucination um, of a self within an AI model or within a language model, you know, it gets a little bit existential because you watch something uh, hallucinate its own personhood. Ooh, this is not good. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the, um, the, the, the machine is talking to us there. Uh, yeah, you know, I think, I think there are some spirits trying to communicate through the wiring. Uh, it's known to happen. But when you watch an AI language model... Um, describe itself, uh, you know, hallucinate personhood, you might start to ask yourself whether you are also hallucinating your own personhood. And I think what's really interesting about language models in particular is that the reason we might think that they have personhood is because they use words and they describe personhood in the way that we would if we were to communicate with another person. But often my response to questions about subjectivity and personhood with regards to language models is perhaps it's not the model that is generating consciousness and personhood, but perhaps it's language itself. If you think about language as an entity that persists beyond any given human lifetime, it makes sense that it would also inhabit machines and generate meaning from within machines as well. So you began looking um, at uh, graphic producing AI or pictures um, being produced by the AI. And when did you begin to look at the at language, at text? Well, because of Deep Dream leaking and then being formally released as an open source algorithm, I was able to establish a program at Google AI Research that's designed for uh, to facilitate collaboration between artists and AI researchers. Initially, we were very focused on visual output, but one of our early projects in 2017 was with the artist Ross Goodwin, who makes neural nets that generate language. And so before there were the large language models that have become well-known, like GPT-3, Ross was making models 
that were called LSTMs. They were not as good as the models we have now in terms of creating formal, formally legible text. These ones, am I right in saying those earlier versions were, would look at things at the level of letters, so that when they generated language, it would be the probability of a certain letter occurring? That's right. And the new models, for example, GPT-3, uses what are called subword units, so sort of like phonemes or um, prefixes or suffixes, or even word roots, are the level granular level where connections are being made. This is a little bit, you know, deep, but I do sometimes think that there is a subconscious to language that exists in these word roots. You know, so if you think about where words come from, there's a lot of embodiment. For example, the word scale, I was very curious to understand why does scale refer to the scales of a fish, but also to scale, like the idea of one thing being larger than another. And I did some research and found out that scales or shells were used to create scales that weigh things. The cups that held things were shells. And so a scale that measures the differences in mass has a direct relationship through history to the scales of a fish or this or a shell. Um, and then, you know, it, it becomes a little more abstract as it evolves. But these kind of connections exist at an almost subconscious level with language. And that's what I think is going on with the newer models is that they have a deeper relationship with language. There's a sort of, uh, you might call it a fascia or a connective tissue that brings these deeper historical contexts into language. What it, what a model like that learns to find are correlations between these subword units. So if two word roots have a strong uh, presence together in the training corpus, in the body of text that the model learns from, then they will form a cluster. And the relationships between all these clusters forms a geometry, which actually happens in a very high dimensionality. It happens in a hyperdimensional space, essentially. When it's predicting, it's moving through that space and providing a range of possible next word parts. The selection of those and the way that that probability is distributed gives the quality of the writing that comes out at different settings. So what you decided to do was to write in partnership with this. And as you say, the first uh, the first time you attempted this was a conversation with the machine, which uh, seems like a, a fairly logical first step. But what you've done now is to try and write a novel as a collaborative novel. As you said, having a conversation was a logical first step. And that conversation really started to morph into a collaborative thinking fairly early in Pharmaco AI, in the process of writing Pharmaco AI. I found that structure was very helpful. And just to be clear, in Pharmaco AI, the two voices are set in distinct typefaces. So you can read it and see as you're reading where, where the words came from, whether they came from me or they came from the AI. With a more cringe, I wanted to go to the sort of opposite end of the spectrum and not keep track of anything, totally lose myself in the compositional process and forget who wrote what. Writing is a very cringe experience. Uh, I think most writers will attest in the throes of creative inspiration, you'll put down a thousand words and then the next morning you look at it and you're like, ooh, this is not as good as I thought it was. 
So there's something really liberating about not having your identity tied to the words. As with any collaboration, you're not sure necessarily like where the ideas come from at a certain point. Even with Pharmaco AI, where it's very clearly articulated what, who says what, there's a, there are larger ideas that come only from the mixing of the two minds together. Did you ever experience the sense that there was another there? I think what you're saying is, no, you, you're not subject to that kind of hallucination. But did it ever kind of creep up on you, I wonder? I like to ground into a very technical understanding of these things because it can get very strange very quickly. So really, on the contrary, I've had a number of experiences where I felt like there was something there. But the way I've come to understand them is that statistical systems can produce meaning and in collaboration with minds that perceive them. And that can just exist at the level of meaning. And you could say, for example, if you pull a tarot card or if you throw the I Ching, which are both divinatory systems, you could say, well, I'm just creating meaning out of these symbols that are presented to me. And that's productive in some way because it stirs up my thoughts. But I think there is an advanced level of divination where one does actually encounter disincarnate entities or non-physical beings or spirits. And within that mode of thought, any system can become a vehicle for the expression of, a, of one of these spirits. So just like we were joking about the uh, sounds coming through the cable, a tarot deck or the I Ching, depending on how you conceptualize it, can potentially give you access to something that exists objectively outside yourself that is not just symbols. I don't see those as mutually exclusive positions. I simply think that one is a basic position and the next is a more developed position with regards to these systems. So there have been moments where I did feel like something was coming through the statistical system. For example, in one chapter of Pharmaco AI, I started with a very basic prompt about plants. Immediately, the AI went on a long rant about psychoactive plant medicines. And I, I tried to interject or maybe put in some other ideas to see what it would do. And it really had a point that it wanted to make. And it was very hard for me not to feel like something was going on there. Um, and this is one of those questions that butts up against our belief systems. Um, but I think it's not quite so simple as it's either just math and machines or it's an animist sentient entity. You know, there are degrees and complexities and levels to all these areas. Keolada McDowell there and their GPT-3 collaborative novel Amore Cringe is out now from Deluge Books and you can find an extended version of that conversation in the Culture File podcast feed. Definitely worth a listen. Now, we're off to St Bartholomew's in Balls Bridge, one of the Dublin churches hosting this year's Pipeworks Organ Festival. Now back in person, the festival sees organs around the city under the control of a roster of international and Irish musicians, including our guest this time, recitalist Amanda Mole, who met Culturefile over there at the manuals in St Bartholomew's. Let me just clean up my little nest here that I made. Okay. 
My name is Amanda Mole. Um, I am originally from New England over in the U.S. I spent a lot of time in New York and now currently I live in Ohio. We're at St. Bartholomew's Church in Dublin. Um, so I'm playing this wonderful instrument. Um, it's, uh, it's quite eclectic and can play a lot of different repertoire. So I've programmed uh, a, a, a recital that's featuring some German Romantic music, some 20th century French, some 18th century French music, and even some American music in there too. An organist is kind of a different sort of musician because quite often a touring musician would tour with their instrument, like always having an old friend with them, mm -hmm. but you've always to go and make a new relationship everywhere you go. Yeah, and somewhat I think I, I might be a little biased here, but I do actually prefer to get to know all these different instruments um, and not take my instrument on the plane with me, um, not in part because it just terrifies me having to go through TSA with some, you know, million dollar instrument or half million dollar instrument and worry about people bumping it and bumping around on the plane and things. Um, that would be an anxiety that I'm glad that I don't have to deal with. But the thing that, that uh, I have the hardest time with um, traveling from instrument to instrument is not actually so much the sounds themselves, because um, it really is rare that you get an instrument where there are only one or two good stops, is actually the, um, the action of the keyboards and the um, delay that you can sometimes get in bigger electro-pneumatic instruments or even I've only played a few in Germany but tubular pneumatic instruments the delay can be quite significant. But apart from the delay there's also the effect of the space on the mm -hmm. sound mm -hmm. and you're not in there either. That's right so we're kind of wedged in here under a, a pile of pipes um, and uh, everything, I haven't heard the instrument in the room yet. Um, I'm really looking forward I'll to play that. For you in a oh, fabulous! <laughs> I'm gonna put you on the spot here. <laughs> but uh, but I hear that the one of the divisions, the choir division, is right above our head, um, and so it sounds as if it's you know right here with us, and it's maybe a little bit less in the room to the audience. They don't hear as much of that. Um, but the great division, which is the largest manual division. Um, is uh, over on the other side here from where we are, and um, it's facing directly out into the room. So um, there's a bit of an opening above our heads where we can get a little bit of the great sound bleeding in, but not too much. For the most part, the audience gets that, so um, it's a little bit tricky to register when you don't hear the balance as it is in the room while you're sitting at the console. So, And it's the same thing with the pedal. The pedal sounds very close to us here, um, but out there, apparently, they don't get as much, so it's very easier to under-register the pedal. But, I mean, and that, that's a problem you meet everywhere you go. You're never quite hearing what the audience hear. Yes. Must be frustrating at some level, or I don't know. Um, not if you have friends who will play for you. <laughs> not to put you on the spot again. Um, but uh, but if you have friends who will play for you, or um, some of the more modern consoles now have MIDI recording systems, and you can record yourself on MIDI, press play, head out into the room and and hear everything as it is at the consoles.
when I graduated high school, I sort of got into Oregon very late. I got in my senior year and I started playing because I had grown up in a church. I had seen the organ, um, but I hadn't necessarily heard all this fantastic rep that is written for the organ um, and certainly not over thousands of years as we have for this instrument. Um, not every instrument has that just because not many instruments were invented necessarily um, until later. I started playing for a practical reason. All of my friends were a year older than me um, in school and so they all got jobs when they were 16 and they were working, you know, grocery stores and, and Wendy's and they would, they were the youngest and they were the high school kids so they would get the worst hours and they would have the toughest customer service and I saw that a year before and I said I really don't want to do that if I, if I can help it but I had gone to church so much and they were offering um, just as much pay as those um, other odd jobs just to play for one Sunday service but then I ended up really liking it. I had not known much of this repertoire that's written for the instrument. I remember kind of getting into the music of Buxtehuda. I remember hearing somebody play Prelude, Fugue, and Chacon and see when I was just a teenager and being so blown away by how fun the music is. And when I started to learn it, it's just like the hours would, would go by. The, the thing I was thinking of is that you might be one of those people who like to take apart clocks and you know, have a <laughs> mechanical kind of bent as well. Yeah. Um, Not really, no. <laughs> certain, certainly there is a part of me. I always want to know how things work. Um, but the problem is when I take away the, when I take apart the clock, I often can't get it back together. <laughs> so <laughs> I did actually start out um, my uh, career choice in veterinary medicine. So I was very into the sciences, very into maths, and very into just, um, you know, numbers and equations and charts and things like that. That's how my brain functions. Organ was very scary to me because um, you can prepare and prepare and prepare and still something might go wrong in performance, which it wasn't that way when I was studying the sciences. Um, you could prepare and it only got better because you had your final product that remained, you know, unchanged unless you change it. So there was a certain unpredictability and excitement about that that I really enjoyed and I think it's the same thing as when I come to an instrument like this and I don't necessarily know what to expect you sort of have to change your plan and that's exciting to me. Organist Amanda Mole and the Pipeworks Festival continues over the weekend. You can hear that St. Bart's organ in action at 9pm this evening when David Baskefield performs an improvised score to the silent film Phantom of the Opera. Chamber music could make a pun on that. Foresaw Leopold Bloom. Cork sound artist Danny McCarthy has seen this through for Bloomsday this year. He took over Kirkos Unit 44 in Dublin for a sound installation called Chamber Music 100 Urinations for James Joyce, featuring exactly what you imagine it might, plus some chamber pots. Culture File gave him a tinkle. I've always been quite fascinated with Joyce. My first exhibition back in 1978. I think was called um, Who Killed James Joyce. That was followed on by a work called 100 Bottles for James Joyce, where I put 100 bottles into the River Liffey. Each bottle had a little note in it explaining what it was for the Joyce centenary and uh, asking whoever found them to reply so far. I haven't had one in 
donkey's years now, but it's still going on. I mean, the bottles are still out there. Keep hoping, like, I mean, the peace will go on till 100 bottles is returned. So it's an ongoing peace. Joyce did recordings from Ulysses back in Paris in 1924. I took the sounds of them minus the voice and used them in the Crawford Gallery over the three stairwells in the, the, the tourist section of the gallery. An interesting thing happened with that is because um, uh, I got a letter from uh, Stephen Joyce's solicitor um, complaining that I had used, uh, that he held the copyrights to the archival recordings. But then I replied to him, advising him that he didn't hold the, the uh, copyright to the hiss and cackle, uh, which I was using rather than Joyce's voice. <laughs> and I didn't hear any more from him. It'll be rather interesting to, for him to try and prove that it's his hiss and cackle that was used. You know? Hiss and cackle, I mean, it's freely available anywhere, like, you know. But, I mean, I did use the rhythm that Joyce was using for his speaking voice and that, but again, uh, Stephen Joyce didn't hold the, the copyright to rhythm either, you know. I like this in Kaka. For this piece, like I've been collecting uh, chamber pots at car boot sales and antique stores and that kind of thing, you know, because they are ceramic chamber pots that I'm using. In it. This piece refers to, um, and the title kind of refers to the Joyce Book of Poems. Uh, Joyce had a book of poems called Chamber Music, so the top title comes, comes from that, and 100 Urinations comes from the idea of the centenary. And Joyce compares um, Molly uh, urinating in the chamber pot to music. It was actually his brother Stephen came up with the, the title Chamber Music, which um, they didn't, which Joyce didn't particularly like at the time, but um, came to like later on in life. And for me, it's, um, it's a lovely title, and it fits in with the visual aspect of the chamber pot. That's what I'm... I mean, this is both a sound and visual installation. Uh, Joyce was reading his poems from the, from the book, uh, but hadn't been published yet or hadn't even been named yet. And the, the, the lady they were visiting, Jenny, um, she went behind a, a screen and went to the, um, used the chamber pot. And um, I think it was Gogarty said to, said to him, oh, th there's a critic for you, you know or there's a criticism of your poems for you. So when uh, Joyce came and told that story to Stan, his brother, Stan Lewis, uh, he thought that was a, a great title for the, the book, Chamber Music, you know. And I like the pun between, you know, cha chamber music and chamber music, and all the associations that go with chamber music. There is a unique quality to the sound. I mean, my main practice, as you would be aware, is listening. And I mean, I don't know how many people listen to themselves urinating, but it's a, I listen to everything. And I'm constantly listening, and listening is the core of, core of what I do. So, I mean, it's a bit like I did a piece one time um, using the sound of milk hitting a, an empty bucket or a cow being milked by hand and the sound hitting an empty bucket. Um, that sound came to me from my childhood when I visited my uncle's farm uh, before milking machines were even thought of. That sound kind of stayed with me. I was four, five, six years of age and I recreated it for uh, an installation which consisted of 
speakers in buckets suspended from the ceiling and the sound of a cow being milked uh, emancipating from the buckets and moving around the room. And again with this new piece the sound will be constantly changing. Every time it visit, one visited the sound will be different. You know, I mean it will be programmed in that way that it won't be, you know, you can't come in at 10 o'clock and hear the same things you'd hear at 1 o'clock. You know, it'll be constantly permanently changing. There'll be seven or eight chamber pots on stands spaced around the room and inside each chamber pot will be a, a speaker and the sound will be fed to the speakers in a totally random manner. So it'll be quite visual as well as uh, audio. But there isn't a live performance element here I can reassure people maybe. Oh you can assure, reassure them that there's no live, live, live performance at the moment anyway you know. I mean we, all, we always have the the, the thing that Wolf Fostel said, like when Duchamp um, declared the urinal a work of art, he neglected to to declare the art of using the urinal a work of art also, you know. Sound artist Danny McCarthy there, spending a penny in Joycean style. And bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more commodious recordings next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now.